Are you an HR department of one trying to figure out how to balance task and strategy while keeping up with changes in regulatory compliance? Do you need a fresh outlook on old topics? Then stop what you're doing, grab your coffee, and get ready to recharge. If you have people, you have problems to solve and things to do. Your host is Brenda Neckvottel, a 20-year human resource professional, ready to explore the HR industry with veterans of business and life with fresh eyes and new ideas. Learn about the rapidly evolving changes in employment law around the country, as well as new tactics to deploy and build engagement in your workforce. If you're looking to implement new practices to make your job easier in HR, then this podcast is for you. Welcome back to the Best Practices in Human Resources podcast. I'm Brenda. It's great to have you guys back again, back in the studio, not running around like a mad, insane person, jumping from town to town, city to state, state to state, meeting to meeting, holy cow, adventure to adventure. Uh, back here again, and it's nice to be back in the studio. But today we've got, as always, we've got Lola, the veteran comfort dog with me, who will probably chime in because she's really great at doing it, and uh, her lovable assistant, Champ, the lovable wonder dog. But most importantly, today we are going to talk about employment law changes that are impacting the nation, what's going on in the country. Uh, we have a very special guest today, somebody that I've worked with for quite a while. Um, we're going to be talking about affirmative action plans, like the one thing that nobody wants to talk about. But it's also a little bit of a mystery, and we've got Eli St. Julian from OutSolve. Um, I've known Eli since 2011. Super, super guy. He's going to be joining in. Incredibly informative. As a matter of fact, he was so good, I barely said anything during our conversation together. So I think this is probably the quietest interview I've ever actually had to give. So um, we've got some announcements coming up. And of course, as always, at the end, we offer free resources. Um, so just remember, folks, that when you're listening to this, uh, these episodes, that the information that is available through the podcast really is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing any form of legal advice. If you have a need, you should contact your attorney to obtain that legal advice with respects to whatever particular issue you're up against. If you don't have an employment attorney and you need one, reach out to me and I may be able to refer one to you through our affiliates program and that is done through Jackson Lewis. All right, so employment changes that are sweeping the nation. Um, <clears throat> some interesting uh changes in the landscape. So right now there is a federal bill that has been introduced that actually will be banning sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination um, and it actually has passed in the house. So this is something to keep an eye on. Um, not that anybody hopefully would want to you know discriminate but we're gonna see some landscape. This is no surprise um, you know, we, we've, in this profession, we've anticipated this coming down the pike, I'm kind of surprised it has taken as long as it has, but, um, it is definitely in the works. So just keep an eye out for that as well. There's also a new development that is very important and <clears throat> this is an educational piece. I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure exactly what I'm going to be doing with it just yet, but I have a significant interest in maybe releasing an online course about this. Um, so as I kind of dangle that carrot out in front of everyone's face, um, 
uh, just give me a little time to kind of process and see what it is that I want to do with this. But anyway, Title VII discrimination claims in the in the past have really only been permitted to be processed through the EEOC first, and that's the Equal Opportunity Commission, before there's a determination as to whether or not the uh, parties can go to court. Now, <clears throat> the Supreme Court has ruled that Title VII discrimination claims can now go straight to federal court. So that is a huge shift in the landscape um, when it comes to what employers positioning is, um, what an employee's positioning is. So that's a very big change and keep your eyes and ears open for that one. It was it was ruled in the lower courts earlier but now apparently there was something that came up um, where it had to go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has ruled that that a claim can actually bypass the EEOC and go right to court. So definitely be on the lookout for that. All right, here's, a, here's an area of the country that we don't really hear a lot about, um, but out of Ohio, Toledo's city in the city. Remember, I talked about this in, pre in previous episodes that we've got changes in law at the federal level, the state level, and now at the municipality level. So, um, so Toledo City Council actually passed an ordinance prohibiting salary history inquiries. So you can kind of see over time that we've got a trend of where people are trying to eliminate salary history during um, the actual interview process to prohibit any type of uh, discriminatory action. Um, there's there's a use in for it, uh, you know, but there are apparently bigger issues out in the world that um, are deeming that more and more locations back down from that. Um, over in Texas, paid sick leave in Dallas and San Antonio. You guys, that's going to be taking effect on August 1st. So we had mentioned Dallas earlier. Uh, San Antonio is also uh, involved in that as well. So make sure that if you are in Dallas and San Antonio and you do not understand your paid sick leave information, be get on it and then make sure that you have what you need in place no later than August 1st because that stuff is changing relatively quickly. All right, over in California, um, <laughs> California has a new law in place. Um, not a lot of details on it that I'm releasing here, but for those of you that are over there, definitely look into it. Believe it or not, they have identified hairstyles as a discriminating factor. So employers can no longer discriminate from hiring or terminating or engaging in an adverse uh, action based on an individual's hair. Um, over in New Jersey, uh, they have some, <laughs> and we're probably going to wind up having to do another episode on this because this is just changing like wildfire. Uh, New Jersey has new medical marijuana law changes. So, um, it, it, you know, you guys that are employers over there, you're going to have to have a really good understanding of how to deal with employee cannabis use over in the state. And same thing with New York, too. So, um, New York also acts, uh, they've put some tougher uh, constraints on pay equity and salary history inquiries. We just mentioned, uh, you know, Toledo a little while ago. Um, so again, you guys over in that area, in that corner of the world, definitely want to take a look at that and find out what's going on. Um, Oregon has had some motion on their hashtag MeToo law. So a few folks are up in Oregon 
definitely take a look at what's going on up there as well uh, they've also uh, really passed legislation on one of the most generous paid family leave laws in the state there's also been some other motion in regard up there in regards to non-disclosure non-disparagement uh, provisions in workplace agreements so you know we've got some motion going on up in that area remember if you if you've been listening in you probably recall in a couple of episodes ago that I mentioned that uh, midterm year uh, usually about July we see some significant changes that are coming down the pike and this is a really good example of what that looks like so um, it's very specific it's very targeted um, so you folks are definitely going to want to pay attention to what's going on um, if there's anything out there that um, I see of it, you know importance and that's you know a good call out uh, be sure that I'm going to include it in the podcast um, I will also be able to include it in social media especially if I think it's a big one um, and you guys can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at best practices in HR uh, Twitter and LinkedIn it's Brenda Neckbottle over on YouTube as well you can follow me on Brenda Neckbottle and we're gonna I'll share this information again in a little while as well so Eli St. Julian is the vice president of sales with Outsolve and that is located down in New Orleans uh, he's been with the company for about 13 years and his ongoing responsibilities include a, a wide range of things from business development um, he performs client needs assessments he does proposal development and account management um, he's a really interesting very very nice man um, with a background in electronic engineering and has been in sales for more than 25 years um, he's very knowledgeable on what is required out there for affirmative action planning EEO1 vets 4212 and also the EEO1 data that is now required in September so um, I'm not going to spoil anything for you guys but uh, I'm going to give this to you normally I do this after the interview but I want to give this ahead of time as well and he's he's going to flip around but as you guys are listening to this and if you want to connect with Eli um, you can find his information while you're listening if you go to bestpractices.org go to my website click on the affiliates link at the top and Outsolve is actually one of the recommended vendors that I have worked with. I've worked with them since, and specifically Eli, since 2011. Um, they're a great group. This is all they do. Uh, they've got a phenomenal staff, and um, it's uh, certainly a vendor that I'm not only willing to provide out to those of you who are listening, but continue to support them as well. So, folks, I'd like to welcome Eli to the show. Okay, so we have on the line with us Eli St. Julian, who is a friend of mine that I've actually known for, oh my gosh, almost almost 10 years now. He is um, with an organization called Outsolve, which is actually one of our affiliate members over at Best Practices on the website. And what Outsolve does is they specifically focus in on the construction of affirmative action planning, but there's so much more, and I'm going to I'm going to hold and allow him to share that with you guys. So, Eli, thank you so much for joining the call. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. Very good. So, do me a favor. So, tell us a little bit about you, and then would you just kind of go into telling us about um, Outsolve and what Outsolve does? Okay. Um, I am a 17-year employee of Outsolve, and I am the resident storyteller. 
Um, <laughs> my, my job is, is to tell the outsolved story to as many people as I possibly can um, and share our, our capabilities and our services and support and our culture and all of those sorts of things and ensure that it's a good fit for, uh, for organizations that need those services. And, uh, and then uh, our staff uh, makes all of those stories come true. So that's, that's basically what I do. I'm the resident salesperson and, uh, and uh, I've been with the company for, as I said, 17 years and, um, and it's been a fun ride. That's awesome. So Eli, I'll kind of give you guys a little bit of a, a back. So Eli and I met um, th when I was working um, with a larger company because we actually recommended uh, Outsolve to our government contractors in the D.C. area, in the Mid-Atlantic region. And so um, I connected with Eli in 2011. And um, we have had a really cool relationship ever since. We've worked together both with clients and actually for uh, some of the companies that I've worked with as well. So um, these guys absolutely know what they're doing. Every client that I have ever recommended uh, to go to Outsolve has had literally nothing but glowing reviews about the organization and they are just absolutely full of knowledge. And basically what they do is that they construct the affirmative action plans, the EEO1 report, the VETS 4212 reporting, and, and we're going to talk about this a little bit down the road, but they also now engage in the EEO1 pay reporting that is being required for 2019. So, Eli, can you uh, go ahead and share with us? So, so for those who don't know what an affirmative action plan is, can you help some of those listeners understand what that does and what the purpose is behind it? Absolutely. In 1965, Lyndon Johnson signed an executive order that basically says that if you are going to participate in any type of government work, government work that is paid for by taxpayer dollars, dollars that, that come from every ethnicity and every gender, then your organization needs to statistically reflect uh, the general population of the areas that you serve. And so what the affirmative action plan does is, is that for any organization that participates in government contracts to the tune of $50,000 or more on an annual basis, that has at least 50 or more employees uh, uh, must prepare an affirmative action plan. And that plan uh, takes a snapshot of their work groups and compares it to the general populations that they serve to ensure that there is a fair statistical representation of the protected classes associated with uh, uh, affirmative action planning and compliance. Those are women and minorities, individuals with disabilities, and uh, veterans. And, uh, and so, what the affirmative action plan does is it creates a, you know, a, a storybook or, um, you know, a backdrop or a baseline of your organization as it exists on a given date and time. And then every year on that anniversary date, it's updated to compare your organization uh, on that date 
and in comparison to that your organization a year prior, taking into account the activity that has occurred between those two dates, activity being hires, promotions, terminations, and applicants. And so what, what Outsolve does is, is Outsolve helps a client uh, prepare these affirmative action plans and then provide them with all of the support that goes along with that. Because not only are you responsible for preparing an affirmative action plan, but you are responsible for having internal HR processes that are fair and equitable and that attract and retain and promote those protected classes. So once your affirmative action plan is complete, our goal is, is to assess those internal HR processes that you must uh, be able to prove that you're doing, things such as having accurate um, uh, dispositioning codes for those that uh, uh, fall out of the applicant pool. Um, are they being consistently used? Are those uh, records being consistently kept across all of your hiring areas? your responsibility to outreach and good faith efforts, uh, postings, posters, um, uh, uh, taglines in your subcontracts and, and uh, on your web portal and your advertisements, you know, all of those things that one must do, that a contractor must do in order to be uh, fully compliant with the regulations and to be audit ready um, we assess, we provide tools and resources and guidance and best practices on how to improve those, make them more efficient, more effective, but more importantly, to make them defensible in an audit because our responsibility to our clients is, is to ensure that they are audit ready at all times because when that audit letter hits the door and the organization that polices affirmative action planning and compliance out of the Department of Labor is the OFCCP, the Office of Federal Contracts and Compliance Programs, that organization will send out scheduling letters or audit letters and if you receive one you've got a 30-day window to respond so it makes sense to be audit ready at all times because if you're not prepared, then it becomes a fire drill and becomes very, very difficult and costly to manage. So what we do is, is we provide you with the guidance and the tools and the resources to not only have the plan in place, but have those internal HR processes audit ready. And then to make ourselves available to train and teach and, and support any issues that may come up uh, during the plan year. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in here and throw something out there. And this is a tidbit. So if, if anybody who's listening is a government contractor and you may not know this, either you're a new contractor or an old, no, if you've been around for a while, you probably do know this, but here's a little gig. So the government doesn't really tend to throw any punches when it comes to announcements. So you get easily 30 days and we get the same thing over, like if there's an I-9 audit and you get the letter from ICE. But here's the thing, with federal contractors, there's actually an opportunity to find out if you're going to get audited it even before the letter comes out and they actually release those names prior in advance and so anytime when I was working with government contractors and the list would get announced I would go and look at the list because they actually pull all those names throughout the year and then I would look to see it's like are any of my clients or the companies that I was working for actually going to be audited which gave me the opportunity to say hey listen if you don't have this together you need to call Eli or um, 
you know, if we were, if I thought for a moment that we were going to get audited, I was already prepared to pick up that phone and call Eli and say, hey, listen, we're getting the letter. <laughs> so, yeah. so you can actually find out, and then they update the list throughout the year, but they, they announce it. It's not anything that they hide. That's right. That's right. It's a, it's called a corporate scheduling announcement list or yes. letter, and a CSAL is, is the acronym for it. And, um, and you're right. It, it, uh, it is posted every year. It's public information. And if you're on that list, your locations are on that list. We've got clients with 10, 10 establishments on, on that list. Uh, one came out, uh, earlier this year, um, close to 3,000, I think, uh, locations on it. And, um, and those companies, of course, uh, we are working with uh, to prepare them for that uh, inevitable audit. So help people understand what the EEO1 and the VETS 4212 is, please, as well, because those are both very important components of what you guys do as, in addition to the affirmative action plan. Absolutely. Uh, EEO1s uh, are reports that the EEOC requires that um, is due in the first quarter of each year. It's, it's, it's just an, another report to identify um, the, the numbers of um, different ethnicities in, in each of your work groups. And um, historically, it has not included uh, a new component, a new twist. Uh, the W-2 uh, information and hours worked, but now it does, uh, and uh, it has caused quite a stir in the Yes, industry. it has. <laughs> and, <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, I'm sorry? Holy cow. So much of a stir that even sometimes the government doesn't even have the answer. Well, and, and, and to this date, um, we have not yet gotten the final um, specs on the requirement yeah. and the expectation on the on the requirement, but we do know that it is due by September 30th, and we also know that it, it looks like it's definitely going to happen this time around, and, uh, and our clients are uh, lining up for us to not only prepare both their EEO1's component, their EEO1 component one and component two, but we are also highly recommending that prior to sending that W-2 data, that compensation data to the EEOC, that an organization vet that data so that they understand what issues might exist before the EEOC does and hopefully take corrective action. Now this year, um, what is being requested is 2017 and 2018 W-2 data. You can't mm -hmm. do anything about that. Those two years are over and there's nothing you can do about it. But we are suggesting that with the 2018 W-2 data, if you were aware of any inequities, any blatant inequities in your comp data and begin to take some corrective action in preparation for the 2019 requirement, which is going to be due first quarter of 2020, then um, you can then show good faith should the EEOC uh, identify any findings 
you can show good faith and have a strategy and a process in place and working to gradually make adjustments where needed. Uh, it does take a long time to, to affect or change uh, comp uh, uh, structures and that sort of thing. And, um, and it takes um, some, some skill and strategy so it not create any additional issues. So, you know, we've got a PhD, we've got a couple of PhD level statisticians and industrial psychologists on staff. And that's all they do is pay equity and, and um, risk analyses and salary surveys and multiple regression analyses and all of those sorts of uh, comp compensation analyses in order to help companies understand if they are fairly and equitably paying their people and, uh, and not discriminating uh, unknowingly in most cases um, uh, you know, against a, a protected class because that can certainly evolve into something much more um, difficult to defend. And so uh, that's the purpose of it is, is to give the EEOC an advanced look at your compensation because pay equity is a big issue. And it's an issue that, that contractors are mm -hmm. going to have to live with and going to have to restructure and prioritize. Otherwise, it could, it could get very, very ugly very quickly. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people really realize that affirmative action goes back to the Johnson administration. Uh, um, he, I mean, he was, he was probably... A, if you look at history, I think it would be safe to say that he was probably the one president that was extremely focused on his uh, strategy for civil liberties. And, I, I, you know, I think that as, as are over the decades, as information has become more readily available and at the speed that it becomes available, um, I I remember specifically that affirmative action really didn't start rising up again until about like the late 90s when there was a very large number of occurrences of uh, claims of discrimination in the workplace. And so that was about the first time that I really ever heard anything about having to take some form of affirmative action. I wasn't in the government contracting sector at the time. I was actually in the retail sector. and. Um, and in a larger corporation, like the one that I was working in, <clears throat> um, it was positioned as being highly advisable to complete an affirmative action plan, not a requirement if you had more than 100 employees. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, uh, it, it was at the height of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you, you're absolutely right. I think uh, Lyndon Johnson, you know, uh, was in, in the midst of, of yeah. understanding that it was a necessary uh, thing for yeah. our country. Um, and, and then it, then, you know, it, then the Obama uh, administration comes in, into office and the first law that it signs is the Lilly Ledbetter law, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, you know, focuses on pay equity. Yep. And since that time, uh, it has just continually evolved and become uh, more of a, a daily uh, requirement of the contractor community. And, 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 and quite honestly, it, it goes beyond the contractor community. 
it is every organization of 100 or more employees must do an EEO-1 report with uh, comp data. Mm -hmm. so, it, so even if you are not a government contractor, uh, but you are of 100 or more employees, then you must uh, send compensation data to the EEOC. Yep. So it's, it, so yeah, so really small business, 100 and up. Um, no one's spared from this point. And that just wants to show you what the priority is today. Yeah. And, uh, and so um, it just behooves the, the, these organizations to, to begin to prioritize this and, uh, and focus on it. Because, you know, it's, you know, the, the, the ramifications are that, you know, if you're a government contractor, of course, you know, the audits, the inquiry, the additional reporting, the, um, the fact that you could lose your government contracts if yep. there's some systemic egregious acts of discrimination that can be proven uh, beyond the desk audit, you know, because uh, the OFCCP can come on site, they can uh, uh, interview uh, staff, mm -hmm. uh, they can request just about anything, they're, they're like the IRS. Um, but if you are not a contractor, the EEOC, of course, has that same level of power and, uh, and uh, can uh, escalate this thing to fines. And, and of course, the publicity is never good. No, um, no. Hurtful to your business. So all of these things are reasons why uh, it's important for, uh, for organizations to prioritize this and uh, and make it a part of their their culture to to continually look at ways to make their compensation programs fair, equitable, and uh, and, and make sense uh, uh, along the way. And, and and so it takes some time, but uh, and it takes money because you do have to hire the experts to do that. But, right. Uh, but it's much it's it, it's very much worth your while. To yeah. Do so can you would you briefly just share with folks too what the what the vets 4212 is as well i know we yeah. talked about eeo1 the paid data and affirmative action plan but a lot of people don't really unless you're in the government contracting field they don't really know what the vets 4212 is yeah it's a it's another report it's another report that's uh that goes to the uh to uh the veterans agency i believe um you know i I don't, it's an, it's another agency uh, mm -hmm. uh, that it's delivered to, and I'm sorry, uh, Brenda, but, but I'm having a brain freeze, but, no. but it's okay, <laughs> but, but it's done, it's, it's done in the uh, third quarter of, of the year, and it's, it's a, it's a requirement, and it, and it too is required of any organization that has a contract, a government contract of $150,000 or more on an annual basis. So if, if you've got a single government contract of, a, of, of 150, or multiple government contracts of $150,000 or more, you must prepare a VETS 4212 report. And, and the VETS 4212, for those, those that don't know, it took the place of the VETS 100. Right, yep. So, you know, and, what I have found interesting over the years is that, I mean, first off, 
so some people may have the questions like why is why is government contracting so strict well first and foremost is that you know the government has over time uh, discovered major gaps in the ability to uh, keep the honest folk honest <laughs> and and to keep the dishonest folk out right so um, so that's why government contracting and the way I explain it to clients is that you remember the show get smart and and the cone of silence right if you stand in the cone of silence, it has a specific circumference. Well, when you're in government contracting, that space inside of that cone, the cone of compliance, gets much skinnier, um, simply because you really have to dot your I's and cross your T's, um, you know, mis-invoicing the government incorrectly time and time again, major flag, because there's a significant fiduciary responsibility that the government is entitled to or has to the American people, because it's not like the government goes out and invests money to spend it. They get it from us. <laughs> so, right. right. So it's it really is to make sure that the money that they're collecting is used appropriately and, and the government isn't being taken advantage of. And, you know, God help you if you are trying to do that because it's, it's a pretty harsh course. And I've seen a number of uh, companies go down that path. But, but also... Um, is that you know we've we've kind of shared that there's a little bit of a seepage into the into the private sector when it comes to some of this compliance specifically with affirmative action planning and it is I, i'm only going to speak from my professional opinion about what i've seen but um in the first term of the obama administration we had a significant number of executive orders that came down and there was like 12 that um, were going to go into effect through the years of 2014 to 2016 and I remember sitting at this conference listening to this and I my head was swimming because I'm thinking like how are we going to be doing all these things and pay equity was a big target at the time but um, what it also does is it has the ability government contracting so putting restrictions on government contractors and, 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 and again, my honest opinion was I think there was too much introduced in a very short period of time because it really made things very challenging for government contractors, particular smaller ones, um, that didn't have a lot of the resources and, and therefore companies like Outsolve were really like a godsend because I, I sent like, like three or four to you at that time. But um, it does open up the opportunity and for influence for the government to start looking out towards the private sector as well and again pay equity data is a perfect example of this um, you know there are significant issues in the country that may not that some people may not have a direct head-on answer for but this is one avenue that the government can influence a look inside the doors of the private sector and make sure that you know the you know folks are being treated accordingly and fairly that's right that's right no, uh, I don't think anyone um, is is you know safe. Uh, if any organization is safe, if in fact they've got uh, a process or uh, a systemic environment of discriminating against uh, anyone, mm -hmm. and um, and I think that is the trend. And and uh, and quite quite frankly, it's the right thing to do. Um, yeah. Because you know it's you know if in fact uh, we are going to benefit from as you said those dollars that come from us all of every race every 
ethnicity, um, every uh, uh, gender, then then our organization should reflect that and should um, should be cognizant of, of that fact yeah. and uh, and do all that we can to be inclusive and uh, diverse and reflective of the communities that we serve. So. There is a major objection that I get, and I have no doubt. I would literally bank my next paycheck on this statement, <laughs> but because I'm sure you get it too. And the objection is, oh, you know what? We're too small. We're a small business, and we don't really count. Yeah. How many times have you heard that one? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I think the government addresses that, you know, as far as government contracting is concerned. And, and the, the, you know, the number is 50. You know, if you, if you are less than 50 employees, you don't necessarily have to comply. But if you're 50 or more employees, you do have to comply if, as it pertains to government contracting. Yep. Um, and then if, if, uh, if you are not a government contractor, it, the number is 100. So, right. you know, if you're greater than 100, you have to meet certain obligations. And or if you're less than 100, you have to meet other obligations. So um, I think, uh, you know, for those small organizations that are saying we're too small, um, there, are, there are ways in which you can efficiently and cost effectively address these types of requirements and mandates so that your organization can still flourish. But right. the reality is this, for any organization that is not creating a culture to attract and retain and promote women, minorities, veterans, and the disabled, you are doing yourself a business disservice. And, and the reason is, is because statistics clearly show that the fastest growing groups of available future employees are women, minorities, veterans, and the disabled. And so if in fact you are going to grow your business from a business perspective, it makes all the sense in the world for you to find ways in which you can create a culture and an environment to attract those protected classes. It's from a business perspective, not just a compliance perspective, but just from a business perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you are not going to be able to attract or retain those protected classes, and it's going to be very, very difficult for you to grow your business. Yeah, and it's hard enough already out there with the type of market that's currently in place because right now it's an employee's market. Yeah. And if, if you look at the numbers that are out there um, and you look at where our unemployment is right now, if you were to compare it and parry it up against the number of individuals that are unable to work in the workforce, you're going to quickly realize that everybody who pretty much is capable of working right now, for the most part, is. So that just makes it even more challenging. But going back to what I was sharing earlier is with the objection is that my counter, and I love how you put it, I love how you put that it is a business disservice. And, and absolutely right. And that is certainly one coin of the argument for sure. But the other coin, and Eli, I know you've seen this, is that the smaller you are when it's discovered that you're not compliant, the bigger the target you've become. 
Yeah, it, it uh, well, <laughs> I'm not quite sure if the bigger the target you become, but the bigger the impact, yeah. should you be targeted. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, yeah. the, and, and that's, the, that's the issue. I mean, to be quite honest with you, the OFCCP does go after the big fish, okay, the they big do. companies, because they can get the big awards and, and, and the, the huge publicity and all of that sort of stuff. So the smaller organizations kind of do get a pass on, on just, um, you know, being a neon light out there to approach. But that doesn't negate the fact that you are on the list, that mm -hmm. you are benefiting from these government contracts, that the OFCCP follows the money and, and will find you eventually, and you will eventually uh, receive a scheduling letter, and that you must uh, put yourself in a position to defend your organization because you never know when it's going to happen. Yep. And so... Um, and then the impact for a smaller organization is much greater because yes, yes. such a hassle for the OFCCP to, to inquire within an organization uh, and have you vetted uh, throughout your organization in terms of your hiring practices, your, your, your record keeping processes, your good faith efforts, and, and to constantly ask you for additional reporting, it just takes you away from your business. And, and, and that's the impact that I think can be devastating to a smaller organization. Yeah, and smaller organizations too. I mean, not that, not that bigger organizations' pockets run deeper because everybody's going to have to, you know, financially manage their cash flow just like everybody else. I think, I think larger organizations have an opportunity to tap into money sooner, quicker, and more efficiently if they need it. But, you know, when small companies get popped by, by fines and, you know, if you are, if you have not successfully defended yourself against the OFCCP, um, in this particular area, or, you know, if you wind up having to go to court for, I don't know, let's say like a discrimination case, such as like sexual harassment or hostile work environment, you know, those, those fines, the penalties, the interest, all those things that go in the, the actual costs associated with just getting everything together. I mean, honestly, it, it, it racks up there really quickly to the point where your business literally is at risk of shutting its doors if you can't fund that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so much cheaper to, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Oh, I would so much rather spend $5,000 to protect a company than spend $500,000 to try and defend it. That's right. That's right. And that's exactly what would happen. That's exactly what would happen. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, and it's, and it's a very cost-effective way for you to, um, to understand, you know, what you, how your organization compares to in, in, within the populations that you serve, mm -hmm. and and it's valuable information in terms of growing your business. So yes. it's not money that is just unnecessarily spent. I think it's you get good value for for terms of the information that you gain, the knowledge that you that you now have, and the environment that you create to grow your business. And, and so that's what it's all about. Yeah. 
Well, Eli, thank you so much for coming on. You have done such a good job of explaining it. This is probably like the quietest I've ever been on any podcast interview that I've done so far. Well, well, well that's surprising because I know because I I know you, Brenda, and, and you can talk when you want to. So. No, no, no. It's uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. This is a first for me, and uh, and uh, and I, I love what I do. I, I I think it's it's a valuable resource that we provide um, at a very efficient and cost-effective uh, rate, and um, and so if if there's anybody out there that that might need our services, just feel free to reach out to Outsolve at any time. And uh, we'd be more than happy to help. So can you share how people can reach out to you guys? Uh, your contact information, are you on social media, website, all that yeah, good stuff? We've got all of that, the tweets and the blogs and all of that sort of stuff, which is, you know, you, know, you, can, I, you can find all of that information on our website, which is uh, outsolve.com, www.outsolve.com. Of course, uh, we've got a toll-free number, and that telephone number is 888-414-2410. And, uh, and certainly, anyone can email me if they would like. I can be reached at E St. Julian. That's E S T J U L I E N at outsolve.com. Um, so uh, we're 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 available uh, in any of those. Uh, any of those means that's excellent and then if you you can also find a link to the outsolve website too by going on bestpractices.org clicking on the affiliations tab and then you'll actually see them listed so thank you so much again eli for joining us this has been fantastic and uh, i look forward to having you on again in the future thank you so much brenda we really appreciate it So that was an awesome conversation with Eli. It was absolutely fantastic. Really loved it. Um, it. It's always a joy talking to him. But you know what? I want to hear what's on your mind. I want to know what you are looking to learn in the field of human resources and your personnel challenges. So you can submit your questions on the bestpractices.org website by clicking on the podcast link from the menu and down towards the bottom of the page is a submission form for you to post your questions, which I actually may read on an upcoming episode. Um, so to do that, you can visit bestpractices.org and that is the website. You can jump on and do that. And then today's question was actually posed to me um, on Quora, and I thought this was, I just how it was worded was really interesting, and I know we did a couple of episodes ago on what kind of questions are your employees actually researching. Um, watching the number of hits and the number of people that listen to it um, really told me that you guys are curious as to what's going on. It has also given me some direct feedback that um, this is a point of concern for employers and I think part of this what I'm about ready to read is it kinda goes into what some employers are thinking because it's how it's worded how the question is worded and and I'll explain that in a second so the question that I got 
is are non-disclosure agreements being overused by some organizations to prevent former employees from exposing abuses in the workplace? Now, first off, what I'm hearing in this is that whoever wrote this has an, an less than desirable experience somewhere. I think there's a, a lack of education as to what non-disclosure agreements are and um, and how they're being actually applied. So I think this person is actually fishing for a win in an audience buildup and response. What this individual got was not that. That's just my impression of how this is worded. So there's a there's a level of education that's missing as to like what non-disclosures are actually used for this person clearly doesn't understand what their rights are and believe it or not a lot of this for an employee to understand what their rights are in the workplace are up on your walls in your office and it's they're identified in employment posters so so let's go through this question so first off non-disclosure agreements don't prohibit employees from talking about workplace conditions. What they prohibit employees or anybody who's signing a non-disclosure agreement is actual business information or something that is specific in the nature of business. It's usually proprietary in its nature, which means that it is so closely guarded that if the word were to get out and somebody were to take that and use it, it could literally destroy another organization. So. Um, you typically anybody who goes into a sales agreement, contracting agreement, um, or is looking at a potential, you know, business relationship will be asked to sign a non-disclosure statement, meaning that they're that you're holding the information close and to the heart. Now, it's also works in conjunction with the confidentiality agreement, which means that certain elements of what it is that you of your business dealings are held in confidence. Um, and and that can be a, a wide range of things but an NDA is really all about holding holding the information to the company close to the vest and not getting that information out and, it, and it's a it's really it's a written contract that simply says yeah I'm not going to go around talking to people about what we're working on what projects we're working on or if I'm even affiliated with you as a partner as an organization so um, so that's really the intention of it. Non-disclosure agreements cannot restrict an employee from talking about workplace conditions. That's a violation against the National Labor Relations Act. Um, it, you know, we've we've mentioned earlier in prior sporadically in some prior ep episodes that you know anybody can talk about what's going on in the workplace, and even if it's not like good they are still permitted to talk about it and probably one of the things that frustrates people the most or employers the most is that people can actually talk about their salary and that's protected that is protected under uh, NLRA um, it's a concerted and protected activity which means concerted is more than one people one person and it's identified as an activity that is where an employer is prohibited from exercising any type of disciplinary action or adverse action against the employee so these are the kinds of questions I hear and I see a lot that are out there in the world. And my goal is to bring you information as to how to manage through them at a very high level. Now, again, 
you know, everybody's situation is going to be different. So if you're running into stuff like this and you need somebody to talk to, by all means, reach out to me. I'm, I'm available to have these kinds of conversations. You can go to bestpractices.work. You can go up to the top of the page and click on book time and you can select, um, you can actually book time, put yourself on my calendar um, and, and we'll, we'll work through some of these challenges out. So um, this I thought was a really interesting question. I'm glad we brought this one forward. Um, and this is exactly what a lot of companies run up against. Small, medium, large. Large and medium tend to have resources that have the ability to effectively manage this. Small, not so much. So, you know, by all means, you are welcome to reach out to me. Um, you can follow me, and if there's anything else that's kind of wild, wonky, and cool, kind of similar to this one, I'm going to put it out on Instagram. Uh, I'm going to put it out on Facebook. put it out on social media channels. So you can find me, Instagram and Facebook, at Best Practices in HR. Twitter and LinkedIn and YouTube is Brenda Neckbottle. So again, you can follow me also on uh, the website, bestpractices.work. That's a really great landing page, good place for you guys to start. Also, um, we've got some upcoming topics uh, that are going to be really cool on some future episodes. I'm actually really excited about them. I know summer is, uh, you know, there's a lot there's a lot going on with everybody on a personal level, so believe it or not, right now there's not a lot from a compliance level that's going on, with the exception of those people who have to prepare for the EEO and reports. So summer tends to be a very quiet time of the year, unless a company has specifically scheduled something like benefits renewal or annual training or something like that. So um, we've got time to do some really great uh pieces of content and interviews and stuff like that, which I'm looking up. So we're going to be talking about um, how, how do you look inward at your company to prepare from an HR standpoint for a potential upcoming recession? There's been a lot of conversation with the economists out there. They really believe it's coming. And if economists tend to really believe it's coming, uh, I tend to listen <laughs> because I remember what 2008 was like and it was horrible. So, um, We've also got a guest that's going to be coming on to ask me some tough HR questions. And I mean, she's tough. I work, she's one of my clients. I adore her. She's great. Um, and she really tends to give me a run for my money and I, and I enjoy it. And she's just a, a really great person. So you're going to enjoy that. Um, we also might take a look at some benefits renewal planning. We're going to talk about government contracting with another guest coming up. And then also take a look at, you know, how do you deal with business disruptors? So we got some really cool stuff coming up and I'm very excited about um, where this is going. So listen, guys, thank you again for joining me. Um, if this was your first time, then you, you had a fantastic session and please, you know, you can, we've got 17 other episodes that we've done so far. So, you know, check them out. There's really good content, really good information out there for you. And if you've come back, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate the fact, usually I throw this up at the beginning of the, of the show, but, um, you know, gratitude is the same where it's placed everywhere. So I really do appreciate you guys coming back and spending time with me and listening to what's going on. There's a tremendous amount of good stuff out there and, um, I'm going to continue bringing it to you guys and, uh, I will talk to you all soon next time. Have a good one, folks.